Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Today, let's take a look at your tomato garden. Are those tomatoes in small containers? Are they sprawling along the ground? Does it resemble more of a tomato jungle than a tomato garden? Well, those are three of the most common mistakes new tomato growers commit. And Don Shore of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, talks about how to correct those mistakes, as well as many others. Do you like to plant from seeds? Do you know the correct depth to plant them? Do you know how to water a new seed bed so those seeds don't go flying all over the place? Professor Debbie Flower has planting and watering tips for your garden. Do you have a tree in your yard that looks like it just might take a tumble onto your garden beds? Well, we have tips for finding an expert in your area to make an on-site evaluation. It's all in episode 15 of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. We will do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. A lot of people like to grow tomatoes, and usually it's a case of learning by doing. Well, maybe if you're just starting off in the world of tomato growing, we can help you out to avoid some of those mistakes. We're talking with Don Shore. He owns Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, a real tomato head. And he gets customers every year that come in with big smiles in April and May and, and then frowns come July, August, and September. And it usually turns out to be reasons of operator error or something along those lines. Lines. Don, uh, what are the most common mistakes that uh, gardeners make, beginning gardeners especially make, in growing tomatoes? First would be planting them in containers that are too small. Uh, the plant's root system is big and needs room to explore and uh, becomes hard to water when you get into midsummer if it's in a small container. You know, go, go into a garden center and ask them how often they water the plants in the garden center in the summer daily sometimes twice daily. And uh, don't make yourself uh, a slave to your garden. You might like to be able to travel for a weekend now and then. Uh, the second is just not being aware of how big a bona fide, well-grown tomato plant will get, uh, 8, 10, 12 feet, and not planning for that. So failing to stake or cage them um, and plant, failure, failing to uh, figure out how you're going to get them up off the ground, have the fruit accessible, and keep the plant more or less contained without having to cut it back all the time. So staking and caging is probably one of the, the biggest, you know, failing to do that is probably one of the biggest mistakes. People who move here from different climates often make the mistake of planting them too close together because they're not aware of how long a growing season we have and how big the plants are going to get. So a gentleman came in who moved here from, I think, Ohio and had planted his 50 zero <laughs> tomato plants <laughs> two feet apart and uh, wanted to know if it was time to start spraying his fungicides. And I said, just for the record, I've never sprayed a tomato plant with a fungicide in all my years of growing in California because we don't need to. But with that two foot spacing, if you get a problem, you might need to. Uh, so a little wider space and you get better air circulation can make a big difference. You create a jungle, you're going to attract jungle critters like whiteflies. Yeah, and or any disease that happens to get in there. If you do happen to get laid blight or something, it's just going to move right down the row. Whereas if you've got room and you have your plants, now I know, Fred, you're now a suburban gardener, mm -hmm. so you probably have you probably have your tomatoes three feet apart or four feet apart. Exactly, yeah. As opposed to two feet apart. Oh, I know, I've, I've never had them two feet apart because I like walking between <laughs> my plants. I, I really wish he had sent me a picture about August of what his 50 tomato plant jungle looks like. Yeah. Uh, but I can well imagine, and yeah, if you get white flies in there, it's difficult to manage them. 
Whereas on a plant that you can work around, you can get in, just wash them off with water, whatever you're going to do uh, to manage them. It's just easier to do. So that crowding, failing to stake them, uh, trying to put them in pots that are too small. And then the next step, the next issue typically is how people are watering them. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the diseases that causes many East Coast gardeners to uh, resort to fungicides, and that's high humidity levels and yeah. uh, nighttime temperatures that are above 70 degrees, whereas here on the West Coast, and nighttime temperatures usually fall into the 50s and 60s and very yeah. low humidity, except we can make up for that and cause mistakes that require fungicides if we overhead water with sprinklers. Yeah, we. I mean, we don't get rain in the summer. Rainfall in the summertime is a huge problem for folks who are battling late blight, which is one of the most common leaf and stem diseases on tomatoes back east. We get it occasionally here, and all you know, I've had it every so often on a plant. I prune it out. That's that because the nights get cool, the days are ten, fifteen percent humidity. The problem basically solves itself. Uh, for those listening in those climates, one of the big steps forward in tomato breeding over the last five to ten years has been the introduction of varieties that are late blight resistant. You look in the catalogs, Burpee Seed Company, Park, all the all the well-known companies now have late blight resistant varieties. Not a huge issue for most California gardeners, but definitely something to look for if you're listening in a rainy climate. Because I know late blight can really devastate a plant. Uh, here, it'll kill a whole branch sometimes. All we've got to do, as I mentioned, is prune that out, and the problem is taken care of. But back there, you start getting into which fungicide rotation are we going to do this summer? And as I say, I've never had to spray for a fungus out here in California. I think uh, when you mentioned the word pruning, and a lot of people make that mistake of pruning their tomato plants, and then they wonder why their tomatoes get sun scald. Yeah, we, we, you and I have gone around about this, about why people prune. Um, there's no reason pause to prune a tomato plant here in California or anywhere else that I'm aware of. Uh, and we do know from studies that pruning reduces yield. So that's the first of all, first issue that overall you get bigger fruit, but yield less of it. So if your goal is a market production of tomatoes from hoop houses in Florida, yeah, you might be pruning and training here. If you prune, you may open up the plant to sun exposure on the fruit that's developing. We get a 105 degree spell of temperatures, which does happen a few times each summer and that fruit's going to scorch. So the denser the canopy, the better in some ways to protect the fruit from sun scald, which is way more of an issue, you know, in the central Valley than it is perhaps in, in other climates. I always counsel against pruning and I can't think of any particular reason to do it unless you're trying to train your plant on some specific kind of a structure or you just have time on your hands. And also tomato cracking can be the result of too much sun as, as well. Yeah. Now let's talk watering. Uh, if, yes. if there's one more, most of the common mistakes made when uh, growing tomatoes, it's uh, irregular watering and irregular watering can lead to a whole host of problems. Yeah, and I've learned now that with as many people doing raised planters as planting out in the open ground, I have to ask first when we're talking about watering, are you doing this in a raised bed or are you doing it out just in an open garden? I mean, I garden in a, in a, on a farm and I'm just planting in normal farm soil and most of my customers are just planting out in the garden in their backyard. But more and more people, especially where soils are heavy or you just don't have the, you know, you don't have good drainage, build raised planters and then they purchase really nice quality potting soil or topsoil from the local rock yard to fill those containers, those planters. They really are containers at that point. So their watering, or your watering, I probably should say, is going to be very different than mine. Uh, you will probably have to water 
daily or every other day, at least for the first while in the season, because the the, the soil is so sandy and so fast draining. Whereas out in the garden, uh, you probably have a siltier loam that will hold water. You can get a few days between waterings, or in my case, as much as a full week, if you apply enough water when you do. So tomatoes do very, very well with a deep soaking every few days to once a week in the open ground, but in a raised planter, it may need it as often as daily at first, perhaps every other day. You'd probably be a better judge of that than I would since that's how you garden. Uh, I, I can tell you from experience that when people ask the question, okay, how long do I water my tomato plants? The answer is always, well, it depends. Yes, it depends, which is not the answer they're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a formula, Uncle Fred. Yeah, well, uh, it really, I can't because I don't know how anything about your soil. That's really what it comes down to. It depends on your soil. And the first year that you have a raised planter is actually different from uh, as time goes by because the first year you put in this nice, fast-draining, loose, fluffy stuff, which is really potting soil. So you're probably going to have to water daily, and it's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to water all that long. You just have to make sure that your irrigation system distributes the water correctly on your raised planter. I know this guy who lives in Folsom. Oh, yeah. He has raised planters, <laughs> and he uses drip irrigation. And my recollection is that his four wide beds he has five drip lines running in each one yes because i know this guy too and the footprint <laughs> of that water as it descends into the into the ground is almost like a, an even cylinder it doesn't spread out so much as go straight down because of the porosity of the soil used in the raised bed so the narrower that cylinder is that footprint of water the more water lines you need so I have a picture that I show when I'm giving talks about this, uh, which has three lines going down a four-foot-wide bed, and it very nicely has three stripes of water in that four-foot-wide bed. You can tell that the water is not, not spreading out by capillary action as it would do in a denser soil. You can correct that over time by top-dressing, mulching those beds with compost, uh, just buying bags of good quality stuff, and it doesn't have to be super expensive, but just continuing to add that on the surface. Also, here's a little trick. When the season is over, instead of pulling your plants out, cut them cut them off and then take all the stuff away and let the roots decompose right in place, which has the effect of not only improving the organic content, but creating macro pores where ultimately water will penetrate out and down more readily. So you can do things to make that sort of fancy potting soil more into an actual soil soil over time, but not for the first couple of years. So it's not uncommon for someone with a new raised planter to have to water 30, 35 minutes every day which sounds like a lot, but it isn't actually with a drip system that much. And uh, those of us out in the garden can run our system for an hour or two every few days and get perfectly good results. So it really depends on your soil is what it comes down to. One of the biggest issues that people have with tomatoes, especially as uh, the summer approaches and ends, the bottoms of their tomatoes turn black or brown. And blossom and rot. Blo yes. yes, even though you, you think of the blossom as being the part attached to the stem on a tomato, the blossom is the bottom of the tomato. Yeah, it gets mushy on the bottom. Some varieties are just notoriously susceptible to this uh, aroma, for example. It strongly correlates with uh, irregular irrigation and fluctuating temperatures. So all the stuff you read about blossom end rot being associated with calcium deficiency or this, that, or the other, or your great aunt who puts a Tums tablet underneath the plant, <laughs> or your friend who uses Epsom salts, or God knows what else, none of those are actually evidence-based approaches. What we do know is that it strongly correlates with 
in this area, for example, with cold temperatures and rain in late May when the when the blossom had set and the fruit was developing, I can mark my calendar eight weeks later when they the customer is going to come in and show me blossom end rot. Uh, it's it deep watering, careful watering does seem to mitigate it. I mean that's the one thing that we can recommend: sprays fertilizers, all that stuff. None of that has any impact on blossom end rot. Thank Careful, you. even, care, yes. I love this. I should sell Tums <laughs> for the amount of times I've heard that particular one. I actually did the math at one point. To, to do a proper application of calcium by means of Tums tablets would require 78 tablets per plant. <laughs> so let's just, let's, it's not a very economical approach. And even if that was the issue, and it's not. So it's mostly related to temperature and, and moisture issues. And the one thing you can control obviously, is the moisture. Thorough watering when you do as infrequently as your soil allows. And that gets us back, of course, to it depends on the soil. But a deep soaking fairly infrequently if you're out in the open ground. Uh, really, even moisture based on your carefully constructed drip irrigation system in your raised planter is going to be more appropriate. I have a message for all of those listening with just one ear. Don't put Tums in the soil. Don't do it. No. Yes, let's reiterate that. Yes. And also Epsom salts. Let's just, no. there's, there's, Epsom salts are suitable for soaking your feet or I believe they're also a purgative. Well, you know, if, if for, for a nursery that would want to try to sell you something, if you brought in a tomato with blossom end rot, they will say, well, it's a calcium imbalance and I've got this spray here that will add calcium. Yeah. Well, I got news for you. That spray that you spray on the tomato, it doesn't get absorbed by the tomato. It just kind of drips to the ground and that calcium yeah. imbalance, it's due to the roots sort of corking over. They can't absorb the calcium that's in the soil. Uh, we have so much calcium in our water that you can see deposits of it on containers in the Davis area. So it's clearly not a calcium deficiency. That appears to have just been a sort of a research direction that was misdirected. They would see what appeared to be a calcium deficiency in the plant, but it is not actually the cause of blossom end rot. I mean, they're not hurting the plant when they spray full cow on it, but it's certainly unnecessary. I'd rather just have you buy something else than you know, buy a nice flower instead of a, a product that's not going to really do any good. Uh, we do know that, as they say, some varieties seem to be a little more susceptible to it. So if you've grown one year after year and it's just getting blossom end rot chronically, hey, there's a thousand tomato varieties out there. Try something else. It's the Henny Youngman theory. Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do that. Well, don't do that. The, now, the, other, the other mistake people make, and I think this is a key one, is selecting the wrong variety because mm. tomato varieties are regional. And if you're listening in San Francisco, um, you're probably going to need to go out and buy San Francisco Fog. That's an actual variety. My dad in San Diego, coastal San Diego, always sought out a particular variety that did well there. And the mistake we see in the hot interior valley is people walking in and saying, I'd like to grow heirloom tomatoes. Do you have brandy wine? <laughs> or I grew up in Ohio and beefsteak was our favorite tomato. Do you have beefsteak? And I say, I don't sell either of those because they don't produce well here. They grow fine. And the blossoms fall off when it's 90 degrees. And it's 90 degrees most days from about mid-June through mid-September here. So those particular varieties, and I'll go ahead and make the generalization that heirlooms in general are not as heat tolerant and not as productive for us here for that reason. They're probably good in the Brandywine Valley of Pennsylvania. I know beefsteak are really big in the upper Midwest, up in Seattle. If you're trying to grow tomatoes, you better ask what's the good variety for your area and so forth. It really is regional. Well, that brings up the fact that you, it pays to shop at your local independent nursery to get the best varieties because they're not going to stock anything that doesn't sell or are poor performers. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, the issue with heirlooms, you know, they're very popular. Um, most of them are from back east. We don't have heirlooms from California because we haven't been here that long. Uh, <laughs> so you're probably <laughs> you're probably better off with a well-adapted hybrid. Uh, you know, don't hesitate to try some heirlooms. But uh, I, I say this over and over. Let's, if you're buying six tomato plants, spread them out. Get a hybrid. Get a cherry tomato. You know, get a get something with that disease resistance. Go ahead and try an heirloom and try that one that your brother-in-law said was the best tomato he ever grew back there in Pennsylvania. Well, that, let's end this on a positive note. For those beginning uh, to start growing tomatoes, let's mention a few training wheel tomato varieties that you'd, you're, you'd be difficult to screw up. Sun gold. There you go. A cherry tomato. It's, it's yellow in color, sweet as all get out, and uh, you, you can't stop it. Yeah, and then when someone's coming in with, you know, they've only got a couple hours of sunlight, I think, well, this is not tomato location, but yeah, cherry tomato will probably produce there almost no matter what anyway. So cherry tomatoes in general, and of course, if you got kids, they're great. Sweet 100, sweet million, super sweet, whatever. There's a whole bunch in that category as well. Even the regular old red cherry, but Sun Gold, far and away, the best seller in the, toma- in the cherry tomato category. Uh, Juliet, another great one. It's a fairly compact plant. It's a small pear-shaped tomato, but firm and meaty. So it's great for sauces and salsas, and it happens that you can just freeze it whole. I like to jokingly call it my empty nester tomato. <laughs> you know, they've, they've grown 10 or 12, and they've done all the canning stuff. and They've aged out of that, but they want just one tomato. It's great for that. You'll get a couple hundred fruit on a well-grown Juliet tomato. So that's another really good one. Now, how about a full-size tomato that's easy to grow? Uh, Champion. Uh, I keep coming back to it, and I think the name is easy to remember. Um, It's a hybrid. It's been around for a couple decades now. It's got a good-sized fruit, three-quarters of a pound. It's got a fairly tough skin, which is handy because that holds up against weather problems. So it's one of the ones that's still hanging out there in my garden in November. Uh, And it continues to set, I have observed, even during higher temperatures. So Champion, of all the hybrids, Better Boy, Champion Whopper, you know, that are out there, Champion does consistently produce well for me. I've also been very impressed by Park Swapper over mm. the years. Just another consistent one. And I don't think I'd be without Early Girl, yeah. not because of its not because of its midsummer production, but because of the early summer and the fall production that it gives. Exactly. Some good varieties right there. Don Shore, he's a no-till tomato farmer and a nursery owner in Davis, California. <laughs> Don, we learned a lot about tomatoes today. Thank you. All right, great to be here. Thanks, Fred. There are several ways to reach us here at the Garden Basics Podcast. Call or text us at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. Email your questions and pictures to fred at farmerfred.com or post your garden queries at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page or at Farmer Fred on Twitter. Let's get to your emails. Gavin in Texas writes in, he says, neighbors are suggesting that our leaning palm tree is in danger of falling. What do you think? Well, Gavin does include a picture of the tree. Gavin, I think I'm in California and you're in Texas. I have no idea what the state of your tree is. It might be worth the investment in giving a call to a consulting arborist 
to get a professional opinion. They look at much more than pictures. They're going to make that judgment by looking for signs of decay and possible soil upheaval. Whenever you have a question about the health of one of your trees, a consulting arborist is a good choice. Generally speaking, consulting arborists are independently employed. They're not working for an arborist to make lots of money. They just want to give you an honest opinion on the state of your trees. Consulting arborists have lots of training. Many of them belong to the International Society of Arboriculture, and it's their website where you can find a consulting arborist near you. Their website, treesaregood.org, treesaregood.org, and then click on the link that says find an arborist. Look for those arborists that have the ISA tree risk assessment qualification. Those are your consulting arborists. But don't let your search stop there. Make sure they're insured, bonded, and have a current business license. So are you going to do a little vegetable planting from seed? That's a great idea. There are so many more excellent varieties available by seed than there are plant varieties at a nursery. I definitely recommend that you try planting at least some of your vegetables from seed. But then the question arises, how deep do you plant them? And how do you water them? Good questions. Let's ask our in-house college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, how to do it. Okay, thinking of planting some seeds, you probably need to know how deep to plant those seeds, whether you're putting them in a container or in the ground. Depth of seed planting is important. If it's too deep, it doesn't have enough energy for the plant to come up above the soil. And if it's too shallow, it tends to dry out or get too hot uh, and die and not germinate. So you need to plant those seeds at the right depth. The recommended depth, if you don't know, is two to three times the diameter of the seed. So what the heck does that mean? Well, imagine a bean seed, lay it on a table on the nice flat side. One direction is it's called the long direction. Maybe that's a half inch. So diameter is the distance across that seed. So maybe it's a half inch one way, maybe it's a quarter of an inch the other way. So there's and there's a third diameter, and that's the distance from the the table that the seed is sitting on to the top of the seed. So we might take a ruler, put the the end of the ruler on the table, have the very first mark right at the table height, and measure up. And let's say that's an eighth of an inch. That's the diameter that we want to count when we decide how deep to plant the seed, the narrowest diameter of the seed. So if this bean seed is an eighth of an inch in its narrowest dimension, then we're going to plant it two-eighths or three-eighths of an inch deep. That's how deep the hole will be, and the bean seed will sit in the bottom of that hole. There are exceptions, of course. Corn is one exception, but when you are collecting seeds or people are giving you seeds or you're finding seeds out in your yard that you want to try again, uh, use that rule of thumb. Two to three times the narrowest diameter of the seed, that's how deep you plant it. Professor Flower, I have a question. Yes. What if the seed is so small you can't even get a measurement on the ruler? Right. Then sometimes you can, if seeds are very small and you can't really measure them at all, you can put them on the surface. And then I like to use vermiculite to go on top of those seeds. Vermiculite is, uh, you purchase it in a bag. It's a mica. The rock is called mica, and it has been processed, mined, cleaned, and heated to be expanded. It'll hold moisture on top of that seed, which is something seeds need in order to germinate. They have to be 
uh, remain damp. If they are damp and then they dry out, they die. So they have to remain damp, and the vermiculite will do that. And often if the seed is very small and we're putting it on the surface of the soil, there's a possibility it needs light to germinate. And you don't really need to know that uh, because the vermiculite will allow that light to come through. So you'll have whatever that seed needs to germinate. So just lay it on the surface and cover it with just a coating of uh, vermiculite or, if you want to, just a coating of soil. Should it be moist vermiculite? Well, you always water after planting. That's another, that's a, like a rule, rule, rule. <laughs> doesn't matter what you're planting. You always water after planting. What do you water with so that the seed won't be disturbed? Well, um, I put a, a nozzle on the end of the hose. DRAM, the t- company DRAM, D-R-A-M-M, makes a great nozzle. Um, they have a website. Um, and they, they make, I don't use a mister. The misters are sometimes recommended for, uh, to put on seeds, to spray the water over seeds, but they're so light that I get impatient. And so I put more of a spray. If I have one of those adjustable nozzles that has flat and spray and uh, all those other adjustments, I use the spray. I stand back and turn the, the water. So it's going straight up in the air and coming down like, like soft rain onto my uh, seedlings, not seedlings, they're onto my planted seeds. Don't you get wet if you do that? (laughs) Not if that, um, if I use a wand, a water wand, which has uh, a stiff, they're about, what, two feet long, and they they have a, a, a stiff metal two-foot-long handle, and at the end is a, a nozzle. And you want a very fine nozzle. I think in DRAM it's the red nozzle, uh, and uh, it produces very small droplets. And I can stand back at least two feet from that. And so, no, I don't get wet. There you go. How to plant a seed, how to measure it, how to water it. Debbie Flower, thanks for the tip. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. I appreciate your ears. How about a subscription? You can get the podcast wherever podcasts are given away, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, and many more. Uh, I, I was just reading here that... Contrary to popular myth, and despite their ferocious appearance, earwigs generally don't attack humans, although they are capable of biting if trapped in clothing or sat upon. Okay. So if you're gardening on World Naked Gardening Day, don't sit down. Or or if you're testing your garden to see if it's warm enough to plant tomatoes, it's probably warm enough almost every... Well, I don't know about some of those northern states... One technique for testing your garden is to go out and and sit on the ground in the garden uh, for 10, 20 minutes. Oh, you don't have to to do it that long. How long do you do it? Two minutes. Two minutes? Two minutes. Two Two minutes. If the ground is cold, you'll be moving in a lot less than two minutes. (laughs) And if if you can sit there for just two minutes, it's warm enough for tomatoes? Yeah. Okay, I always heard uh, 10 or more, and some people suggest we do it in shorts and a t-shirt, and others suggest we do it naked. So if you were to sit on the earwig naked, uh, you might have a problem. 
<laughs> yes, maybe more than one problem. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs>